This is the Beautiful Writers Podcast. I'm Linda Sievertson, and I feel like I won the literature lottery today with the perfect duo for this show. Glennon Doyle is back as our guest host. If you don't yet know her work, you will in a few minutes. Glennon is here to get bookwormy and political with one of our environmental and human rights heroes, the best-selling author, activist, and CNN correspondent, Van Jones. We have all had this experience, I know you have, where you hear someone speak and time slows. They come on the airwaves and you feel instant relief. The things they say ring truer and saner than the clamor around them. They're people, right? So they're fallible, but they rise above the fray, their eyes chained to things brighter and higher. I think both Kennedys, Bobby and John, had that. Certainly Martin Luther King Jr. and Mandela had it. It's a rare gift. Obama has it. Their hope and faith and vision helps us write our course and get back on track. Van Jones has it. A voice, a vision, a lifetime in the making. As a little boy in the South, Van went to sleep at night under pinned photographs of the Kennedy brothers and Martin Luther matched to his Star Wars action figures. At Yale Law School, he was idealistic and optimistic until painful inequities met him there. He saw, for instance, that white students caught doing drugs were not punished or they were sent to rehab, while black kids three blocks away caught with smaller amounts of those same drugs were sent to prison. Van's professor asked him to monitor a peaceful rally, but when the police arrived, despite following their instructions implicitly, Van was arrested. America was no longer the land of the free. And when police officers were caught on video brutally beating Rodney King and were not punished, Van's resolve to fight injustice grew. This took many forms. For a time, he was a revolutionary. He went on to initiate a hotline in the nation's first computer database for victims of police abuse. He founded the Ella Baker Center for Human Rights and other groundbreaking foundations to follow, including Color of Change and Green for All, which is a national NGO dedicated to creating green pathways out of poverty. Van taught at Princeton. He is the president of Dream Corps, which empowers the most vulnerable in our society. He and his longtime friend, the late musician Prince, founded Yes We Code to get minority kids into the tech world. His first book, The Green Color Economy, was a New York Times bestseller, as was his second, Rebuild the Dream. Van was special advisor for green jobs, enterprise, and innovation at the White House under Obama. And despite relentless attacks from conservative media, he was embraced by people on both sides of the aisle. Many people hope he will run for president, but we're not going to go there today because he's focused on serving in other ways, like writing. His new book, Beyond the Messy Truth, How We Came Apart, How We Come Together, is the map to get us back. Reading it brings instant relief. This is the book to jolt us out of the bipolar, divisive, arrogant insanity that we now find ourselves in, which is important, y'all, because Thanksgiving dinner is around the corner. You get what I'm saying? So thank you for being here. I am humbled and honored to be in conversation with Van and Glennon, and I am so grateful that you're here to share it with us. Welcome. Lennon, oh my God. <laughs> you're right. <laughs> Good Lord, woman. Okay, so you're in the middle of your Together Live national tour. 
You recently had to flee your home in Naples, Florida for one hell of a hurricane. <laughs> I love that term. You're uh-huh. slow walking through airports trying to keep up with your Olympian Barbie bride. You're raising <laughs> hundreds of thousands of dollars, if not way more, for Harvey and Irma and Maria Hurricane Medical Relief that's already on the ground. Let me see. Your number one New York Times bestseller, Love Warrior, was just released in paperback. And among everything else, you're making your O Magazine column deadline. So I don't know how I got so lucky to be in this mix, but thank you. And how are you holding up, sister? (laughs) Well, you got so lucky to be in this mix because I told you a long time ago that if you got Van Jones, I would be there. I know you did. (laughs) I did. I worked it, girl. Yeah, you did. Yeah, I'm good. I'm good. I'm fine. I mean, the hurricane didn't do as much damage as we thought. I think it's so strange, but natural disaster right now, as terrible as it is, it's like it just brings out the best in communities. Our community has just rallied. I think it's because there's nobody to blame afterwards. You know, usually when there's some kind of a disaster, there's somebody to blame, so everybody gets pissed off. But in this case, it's just people who don't talk to each other or holding each other's babies and feeding each other and showing up for each other, so that part's good. And the Together Tour is freaking amazing. It's exhausting, as all good work is. But the other night I looked up and there's 3,000 people in the audience and on stage is a Pakistani activist and two badass women of color doing amazing leadership work. And then my fierce Olympian gay wife and a 50-year-old Jewish woman. And then I'm like the token white person up there. And it's just freaking. It's the kind of leadership that needs to be just all different ideas and religions and races and all just sharing stage. Because the idea that we're all being told to be afraid of each other, but all we have to do to eliminate fear is just get close to each other because fear can't handle proximity. So that's what we're doing. It's all hard. It's all good. (laughs) The pictures are so cool. I love looking at the audiences. Your audiences are so enthusiastic and large and beautiful. And there's so many men in the audience. It's just awesome. Yeah. Keeps you hopeful. It keeps you hopeful. Yeah. So when you and I were talking about having Van on, I was so motivated and I had my ex-assistant, Natalie Kotke, had made this incredible documentary called Company Town, and Van was in it, and I was so excited to reach out to him, and I asked Natalie, I said, can you give me his email? I really want to do this, and Glennon really wants to do this, so she gave me the email, and then you and I got distracted, right? Just been a little busy, so. Shocking. Anyway, the other day, magic happened. I tweeted about Company Town. I saw that Van, again, back to the magic of social media, I saw that Van happened to like my tweet, and I thought, that universe loves speed thing. I might have four minutes while he remembers who I am <laughs> to email him. So I emailed him right away, but I thought, here's what's so crazy about that. When I emailed Van, I had no awareness about the perfect timing that was going on because you were just about to start your Together Live national tour. He had just finished his We Rise tour. Your charitable mm-hmm. foundation is called Together Rising. Your main mm-hmm. hashtag is hashtag love warrior, and his tour was powered by hashtag love army. I'm putting all this together, and I'm thinking, oh, my God, I feel like I'm looking at the male and female versions of the same work, and I just want to be a foot soldier for both of you. Oh, God, that's so cool. Yeah, boots on the ground. We need <laughs> all the love boots on the ground right now. That's for damn sure. Mm. Okay, Mr. Jones. Mr. Jones, we are such huge fans, obviously. Does it sound goober to say that we're love warriors reporting for duty in the love army? 
It sounds like music to my ears because we sure got a big hate army out there someplace. It seems like, so I'm glad. <laughs> At least we got three of us now. <laughs> Anybody else comes along. <laughs> I think there's more than yeah. three people in your armies, people. <laughs> it's yeah, true. There's it's a true. lot. Yeah, but I'm uh, honored to be in your company and able to talk. I mean, I think this is one of those years that people are going to remember uh, for a very long time. And to your point, I do think that it's all the acts of kindness and solidarity and empathy and sympathy that are going to last the longest. We got a lot of bad stuff happening, but a lot of good is going to come out of it, I'm sure. Yeah, no kidding. Yeah, I feel like, Dan, one of the things that I love so much about you and your work and have forever is that it just seems like right now in this time, everybody's feeling angry and threatened. And so most of us just go into our primal instincts, right? This like fight or flight reaction. And it just feels like there's always this third way that every leader I'm looking for right now is not in fight or flight. They're in this third way that is like this invite, right? So it's like not people that are just screaming, but like pointing to something better, pointing to a better story to invite people into. So you're doing that. And I'm really grateful. Oh, gosh, we have so much to talk about. Van, I have been a massive fan as well, all the way back since 2008 when you released The Green Collar Economy. My son Tosh and I had released an environmental book for teens at the very same time, and it was called Generation Green. Soon after, Tosh was asked to speak in front of, it was like 5,000 teens at the LA Convention Center for the Environmental Youth Conference. And he spoke about the types of green jobs that teens could look forward to pursuing, and some of which, a lot of which, he learned about through your amazing book. So you've had a real impact on my family. Oh, I appreciate that. You know, it's so funny. That book, nobody wanted to publish that book. Uh, This is, so in in, uh, 2007, I was working in Oakland, California. I was trying to get low-income urban youth jobs putting up solar panels. So kind of very, very simple project called Oakland Green Jobs Corps. Right. At the time, though, that was a really radical idea and a new idea. And we had some success getting, well, thank you. And we got uh, Nancy Pelosi to push for legislation. We got George W. Bush to sign a bill Mm -hmm. called the Green Jobs Act to spread versions of my program across the country. And I wanted to write a book about it. And nobody wanted to publish the book. And their view was, and that that, the way that publishing industry works, there's no model for this book. Mm -hmm. Black people don't read green books. White people don't read black books. You've got a black environmentalist. Nobody's going to read the guy's book. This was the universal conclusion of the entire... I went to every major publisher. All of them turned me down. But it, luckily, there was a young editor at Harper SF, which is now called Harper One. Yeah. There was a young editor named Gideon Wilde. Who oh, who's not young anymore. He's like runs the place now. Well, that's what I'm saying. Ten years ago. Yeah. He was a new guy. He was a young guy, and he had heard me speak and thought well of my potential. And he said, you guys are crazy. You'll have a huge audience. Sure enough, we got the book done. It debuted on the New York Times bestseller list. Yeah. It's in a, six languages. It's in 100 U.S. universities last year. But if you're a writer and you are trying to say something truly new, mm-hmm. you have got to find in yourself that extra strength that extra lap or two or three, somebody will find that connection with you 
but it takes an extra kind of belief and commitment in what you have to say. It's like you're psychic because I wanted to ask you if you had had any fake it until you make it days where you were dealing with major rejection. So how long did that Mm -hmm. process take for you where you were shopping it and thinking, I don't know if I can get this done? Well, you know, it all went relatively quickly because we were in that kind of green rush movement, you know, the Al Gore moment. So it went quickly from a chronological point of view, but from a psychological point of view, Having every major publisher tell you no, um, it's a battering that you go through, especially because the meetings are great. You know, they think you're clever. And, and then afterwards, it's like, geez, nobody's going to buy this guy's book. Mm-hmm. And I knew because I'd been out on the road for a couple of years. The other thing I would say to writers is when you go out there yourself and now I get to speak to large audiences on TV and elsewhere. But man, you know, 10 years ago, if I had 50 people, 30 people, I was thrilled to be able to share my little PowerPoint. I had my PowerPoint. I call it the PowerPoint Al Gore would give if he were black. (laughs) And it would start out, you know, 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 talking about we need jobs and we can have these jobs in the solar industry and all this stuff. And retrofitting buildings with all those kids who don't have jobs. Absolutely. So, and it was in the middle of still the George Bush kind of hangover yeah. and you know before Obama came in and if I could talk to 100 people man I would fly across the country to do that so you have to go through that apprenticeship mm-hmm. that period where it's just you and your bus ticket or whatever you know, you mm-hmm. and your Airbnb and your belief and it's where you hone the argument yeah. and it's where you eventually realize what works what doesn't work what people understand what they don't understand mm-hmm. I think if you can get out there, especially if you're doing nonfiction, if you can get out there and really talk to people, and after you give your talk, stick around, ask people, well, what struck you about the thing? What made sense to you? What do you wish I'd said more? What do you wish I'd said less of? Let people develop you as a communicator in general. Then when you turn to the page, you've already got a whole bunch of stuff yeah. that is ready to go. Glennon, you've probably found exactly the same thing in all your speaking gigs and with your blog, right? All that audience and readership interaction. Yeah. I think that the rookie mistakes that I made were thinking that I could write a book. Like, nobody can write a book. You just have to sit down. And writing a book is... I remember Cheryl Strayed telling me, well, what writing a book feels like is that you can't write a book. It's impossible. All the time, all the days. People say to me all the time, how do I become a writer? And sometimes I think what they mean is, how do I get published? But a writer is just somebody who writes every day. Yeah. So the way you become a writer is you just make sure your butt is in a chair for however many hours you've decided a day and that your fingers are moving. And, um, <laughs> and then you just don't get on the Internet. That's really the only right? thing that will take you out. That is right? my I mean, biggest Achilles heel is the texting that comes in and the Internet. Van, what is your relationship to that while you're writing? When you're working on a book, what's your schedule? Well, I unfortunately always write, I have a new book coming out called Beyond the Messy Truth. I unfortunately, the last two books I wrote pretty much the same way, which is like a madman. Like Like in five weeks or something? Exactly. And spent six weeks just being miserable Mm -hmm. and insane. And it's like, I don't even remember how it happened, but I did have a lot of material, but you have to just turn the cell phone off. I don't mean 
put it away or you have to turn it off because if you're like me, you've already hit all the wrong buttons at some point earlier. So every time something happens in the world, it's going to beep or flash or it's going to send you some little alert. And and I don't know how to unpush those buttons. So even when you're working really hard, your brain is wired. We're these little lab rats and we're proving some huge corporation correct that we just cannot resist these devices. So you literally have to cut the phone off and put it in a drawer and get a watch. Remember those things, watches. And um, give yourself a couple hours. And then I guess people used to run outside to smoke a cigarette. Now you have to run outside to check your phone. But give yourself a couple hours without that. (laughs) Yeah, I have to tell myself the answer, if it's writing time, the answer is not on Twitter and it's not in my pantry. If I can avoid Twitter and pantry... (laughs) Yeah. I will get some work done. Well, Twitter, I think Twitter should be renamed Hater. I am yes. starting to, I think there's some conspiracy to push all good people off of Twitter, and I think it's working because yeah. it's just such a mean space. I like Instagram a lot better. I'm, um, I, I, love I just feel like, yeah, I don't know what's going on with Twitter, but they have to figure out some way to get the nasty people off of there, or mm-hmm. I just think it's, it's just no way okay. that it can't it can't survive with just yeah. being a, a complete, like a hate-filled space for mean people. Yeah, because it's inherent in the medium of Twitter. It's like our problems right now require nuance and gray, and they all require more than 140 characters to get <laughs> right. work done. Right. All you can do in 140 characters is insult people or make black and white statements that don't help. Yeah. What I love about Twitter, yeah. what's been so terrific for me about Twitter, is living in Los Angeles near uh, forest. We have a lot of fires out here, so whenever I smell smoke or I hear sirens, I can just go straight to Twitter, and people are posting exactly where it is and what it looks like, and I think Twitter is phenomenal for emergencies. Phenomenal. Mm -hmm. I want to go back to something that you mentioned, Glennon. You mentioned the words newbie mistakes, and just a little bit more on this writing topic, because our listeners are big writers and readers, and You know, Van, when I first started out writing, I had that total fake it until you make it kind of vibe going on. And I would add seven commas into every sentence while I'd be transcribing my interviews. And, you know, one comma for every time a person paused or took a breath. I remember sending pitch letters to potential interviewees and to the media, and they were filled with typos. So I kind of want to hear... You know, what were some of your embarrassing rookie mistakes? Did you have any when you first started writing or even in your career in general? Well, you know, I've had a long career, so I've had, you know, lots and lots of mistakes. Um, <laughs> you know, I started out, I went to law school and then I got out and I worked on police misconduct and juvenile violence and youth organizing for a long time in the Bay Area before I burned out on all the funerals and coalition meetings that would go crazy and bad outcomes on votes and I just couldn't do the urban frontline activist thing anymore after about a decade or so and I uh, started family and started working on environmental stuff, wound up in the White House for about six months and then my left wing path caught up to me and I decided it was better to quit and go <laughs> teach for a while than to continue to be pummeled by Fox News and then found a place for myself in television and along the way I think what my through line has been, I've always been trying to figure out some way to deal with what I call like the least of these, the people who are left out, locked out, left behind, whether it's African-Americans or LGBTQ or folks who live in Appalachia or whatever, and trying to figure out a way to be a good 
voice, a good advocate, a good champion for causes and constituencies that, frankly, most people don't care a ton about. That's been the big calling. I've tried to use public speaking. I've tried to use television. I've tried to use writing for that purpose. And inside of that, you can make a ton of mistakes. I mean, early on, it's just about being so self-righteous and being so didactic and reductive that the only people who agree with you are like your roommate and your ex-girlfriend. And everybody (laughs) else is like, get this person away from me because it's just too shrill and too extreme and too over the top. With my new book, I really feel like I've come full circle because you start off as a bomb thrower in your 20s. And by the time you get to your late 40s, where I am now, you wind up realizing the world needs bridge builders too. Yeah. And sometimes the best bridge builders are the people who used to be the bomb throwers. And that's kind of me. You know, I used to be the, the loudest guy in the room, the most belligerent, trying to make my points up for my cause. And now I've gotten to a place where I realize that we just can't get all the way to where we want to get to as, as a society just bashing the hell out of each other all day. So that's fine. Can we just do that from like 9 a.m. to noon and get out of our system? And then from like noon to five, can we try to find some stuff we could work on together? That's really where I am now. And the book is really, hopefully people are sick of the crazy now. If people had enough of crazy and want to have some more sane conversation. Yeah. Yeah, And sometimes when I'm listening to you, I hear always, actually, I hear this faith, like I'm a person that sees the world through faith lens also. So I kind of hear that language underneath some of your words, which I love. So, you know, just the least of these and the way that you speak and the way that you do your work in the world. So in terms of speaking, my motto is faith and sweat. So before an event, I just sweat like hell and prepare till I can't prepare anymore. And then I get to the event and I tell myself, okay, the sweat part is done. So it's time for faith. And I literally say before I go on stage, okay, God, I showed up your turn, like just total surrender. Do you have any kind of prayer or ritual that you do that helps you kind of keep showing up and be brave? Yeah, especially before public speaking. My view on on that is that if I were to steal, just for you know the heck of it, if I were to steal your purse and throw it in a river, uh, you'd be very mad, uh, but you could get another purse. If I were to take your laptop and throw it off the roof and shatter it to a million pieces, you'd be very mad you get another laptop. If you come to hear me talk and, you know, I talk for an hour and I don't say anything of any use. I don't take any risks. I just bang through my same old, same old. And, you know, you could have seen the whole thing on YouTube and it would have made the same, no difference to you. I can never give you that hour back. Mm. If I waste your time, that is the one thing that I can never ever, no matter what I do, repay you for or restore to you. And so before I go talk, I take it very seriously. As a practice, I think about how much effort every single person went through in that audience just to get there. Yeah. The child care, yeah. the public transportation, the parking, whatever it is. I try and think about all the things in their life that may be causing them to be distressed or sad or worried. And I try to think, what do they need? What do people really need right now? And then... I think about the people who can't come to the venue because they're in prison or because they're just too poor or life is too hard for them. What would they want to be said to the people who at least have enough privilege and opportunity to show up for a lecture? And what I find is when I'm focused on what do the people in front of me need and what do the people who aren't there need, 
I just disappear. I'm no longer mm-hmm. this person worrying about how I look and what I sound like, and I can just be a good channel. So I, whenever I give a bad speech, it's because I skip one of those two steps. I forgot to connect to the audience, or I forgot to connect to the constituency. Wow. wow. Okay, so I have a weird face question, and I'll pose it to both of you, or either of you. Is coaxing the muse, the idea of coaxing the muse is something writers talk about all the time. Is that the same thing as praying to God? And if not, do you believe in the muse? And do you have any advice for wooing her? Oh, God. I don't know. I just assume that the muse coaxing, I have literary friends that say that. I just feel like that's like a, like fancier people who don't want to say the word God say muse. <laughs> I feel like it's all freaking yeah. vocabulary and it, whatever we're talking about this space that inspires you, that gets you outside of yourself, that helps you serve is the same, same, same for everybody. We all just use different vocabulary. Yeah, I pretty much agree with that. And the truth is messy, too. I mean, that's why the book is called Beyond the Messy Truth. Like, it's, I found that the conversation becomes very reductive, very didactic, and there's a, a marketplace for division. So, mm-hmm. and, and that marketplace for division is, is across the board. So even in questions of faith and belief, it's like, well, you know, are you a this or are you a that? Do you use mm-hmm. this word or that word? And I think it obscures the fact that it's a mystery. Yeah. You know, this, you know, we could all just be trapped in some virtual reality game and we might be some totally other alien species. I mean, who knows? I think about it's that all sometimes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But while we're here, it seems that humans tend to have some awareness of something beyond our immediate five senses mm-hmm. and can find meaning and comfort and even direction. And whether it's called faith or intuition or the muse, just giving that, I find the more space I give that in my life, the better my life gets. And I find the less space I give that in my life, the worse my life gets. <laughs> and so yep. for me, without being a fundamentalist or anything like that, I can just say, what works for me. And, you know, when I, when I open my heart and myself up to a deeper purpose, better words come out. And those words are of more use. Yeah. Okay, just a couple more writing questions. Van, who believed in your writing before you sat down to start your first book? Did someone see it for you? Maybe tell you to go for it when you didn't have the confidence? Well, my mother encouraged me to write from the very beginning. I wasn't very athletic. I was a nerd. I didn't have that many friends. I didn't have much going for me. But I like to read and I like to write and I like to draw. And my mother really and just all in encouraged that. And I would write little stories and illustrate them and <laughs> on white typing paper that she would bring home from school. She taught typing and um, office management at, at the public high school in my county, and uh, she would bring home white, whenever she would bring home, like, white typing paper, I would just get happy because I could fill it up with stories and fill it up with drawings. And and so I had a great deal of confidence in my writing from very early on. I think the other side of it is having something to say. And that took longer because it's a crowded field of young African Americans whose, you know, parents came through civil rights and who want to make the world a better place. I mean that's not as interesting 
you know, putting 10 or 15 years of work in and coming out with some novel ideas about workforce development and clean energy, that kind of gave me something yeah. to say. And then leaving the White House and going through stuff I've been through and working on CNN and working with Newt Gingrich and working with Prince and and working with President Obama, like that then has given me something else to say in the new book. Yeah. Uh, the writing part, I was blessed to have support from the very beginning. Mm. Glennon, how about you? Who believed in your writing? Yeah, well, <laughs> I've actually never told this story before, but so when, I don't know, what was it, like 10 years ago, my sister and I, you know, my sister who's been my life partner since she was born, she, we were both in transition times, kind of weird times, and she decided to, she was a corporate lawyer, she decided to leave her corporate job and to join the International Justice Mission and to go to Rwanda to help fight child sex trafficking and child slavery. And I was freaking out because she was leaving me and because that sounded really scary <laughs> to me. <laughs> and, and so she came to my house one day before she was leaving, and I'd never tried to live without her. And she had a laptop and this letter, and it's in front of me. It's always in front of me. It's right here. It, it just starts with God has gifted you with a passion that's contagious and a voice that reaches into places in people's hearts that have never heard. God's put on your heart a desire to write. And then it goes on and on. And it ends with, I will joyfully and prayerfully await the magic that you and God come up with. It will be a treasure. And this is before I'd ever written a word. And she left and said, I'm going to go do my work in Rwanda. And the way you're going to make it through is you're going to sit your butt down in your chair. And you're going to do the work that God has for you. Oh, my God. And that's what she did. She went away for a year. And I stayed and started the blog. And then she came back and we kind of joined together my passion for writing and her passion for service. And that's how all of Together Rising started. And now we're all over the world doing the kind of work that she wants to do while I do the kind of work I want to do. So, wow. yeah, it was my sister. Thank you for reading that, Glennon. I had full body goosebumps on that. That was incredible. Thanks. All right. Next topic, life intrusion. Okay, natural disasters, kids, divorce, marriage, haters. Any favorite tools, Van, that help you get through and help you focus? I'm very lucky that my wife, Jana, is full-time committed to our boys. And she's an attorney and was completely capable of going out and building a career for herself in the law, but decided that she wanted to be a full-time mom and also a full-time help to me. And everybody didn't have that, doesn't have that person in their life who's capable and willing to make those kinds of commitments and sacrifices. So I'm deeply appreciative of her for that. So I just wanted to, just, before I start bragging about how great I am at time management, I want to point out that I've got, like, I'm cheating. I've got, like, massive help. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. And, uh, I love it. So Then I also figured um, out that I needed a wife to get it. <laughs> yeah. Very good. Hey, I want one. <laughs> Yeah, that's what every woman needs, Linda, is a wife. I'm making my 27-year-old son do grocery runs for me lately. I'm paying him like he's, you know, hired help just to go get me some food. (laughs) Yeah, don't let mom starve. Here's the money. Like an app called my son. Oh, my God. Well, yeah, so I get a lot of help. I get a lot of support. I also work for an organization called the Dream Corps. Yeah. uh, Even though I'm a a volunteer at the Dream Corps, I'm practically more than a full-time volunteer there. And so I get some help from there. So I want to tell people, there's a mythology out there that you yourself somehow are supposed to 
solely and individually go into a basement and create all this stuff on your own. Mm -hmm. And if you can't, it's because you suck. And you just need to suck less and be mm -hmm. you know, <laughs> it's, it's really destructive because it's a team sport. Even writing a book is a yep. team sport. You need help. You need support. You need, you know, I've sometimes employed ghostwriters on different parts of things because I know what I want to say, but don't have the time to do the research. And because I'm a person who's in the community, I have people sometimes step up and try and help me do different things. You want to think about it, all this stuff, as a community effort that you're leading, that you have a main responsibility for, but you're trying to consolidate community wisdom. When the book is published, to get the book bought and read by anybody, you're going to have to engage your friends and allies anyway. It's not just you by yourself. Yeah. And I really want writers to give themselves a the permission to build a support team for themselves. It's okay if you need a check-in partner beyond your editor before you even get an editor. It's okay to be a part of a group. Don't move at the slow pace of the group. Go as fast as you can. But I put that out there just because I do think that when people, they imagine, you know, Tony Morrison's like somehow sequestered in a basement somewhere for 20 years. <laughs> you know, she's a social person. She knows a lot of people. She gets out a lot and helps her work. Yeah. Well, speaking of your book, Dan, yes. my God, I took it with me this last week. I was on the road and I started reading it. And honestly, I will tell you that I thought, okay, I'm going to just like get the main points down so I can do this podcast because <laughs> I'm on the road and I can't read anymore because my attention span is suffering. Start to finish. I read every single word. I actually grasped what I was saying on the stage and started over, did something completely different last night or two nights oh. ago, wherever I was, just based on how freaking important I felt like your message in that book is, the third way of it, the working together and undigging our heels, and largely like the holes that I didn't, I don't know, the flaws that I saw in my own liberal thinking, actually. Me too. Um, yeah, I just, it was exactly what I needed at the exact right time. I'm telling you that this book will be on all of my lists for all of the people. I think it's really important. I think it's exactly what this country needs right now, and I'm really grateful. It's already made a huge difference to mm -hmm. me and all the people what, that I've what, been on the road. What struck you about it? Well, I mean, first of all, that you've been doing this work for so long. I think that a lot of us just woke up like a hot minute ago. <laughs> so it's comforting to have somebody to follow that has been in this for so long, saw it coming. And I think you yes. put so many words to feelings that I like the white lash word, like uh, that, just the vocabulary to what I sort of understood was happening. The idea that this is not completely black and white, good and bad, that there are suffering people who, you know, when you mention in Appalachia, the places where they've lost their jobs, that there are people who have been suffering silently to people like me. Like, oh, I didn't hear them. I didn't yeah. hear them suffering. Also, yeah, Bryce, the, his the character, Bryce. Yeah. Bryce Schumann, yeah, oh my God. Hit me. That hit me. I mean, Dan, I changed my whole thing. I was talking about, you know, bringing everybody to the table on stage and who would be at that table. And there would be people of color at that table. There would be Muslim people at that table. There would be gay people at that table. But then I rewrote it, and I was like, you know what? At my table, the person I need to invite to that table is a Republican wearing a red hat. Yeah. Who it breaks? That's who I need to have at the head of my table. Can't feed his kids. Yeah, yeah. It just made yeah. me. It was a little bit humbling, which is always a good thing. And 
all I can say is it's the third way. You know, we're all digging our heels in saying our way is better. And you kind of offer us in since well, you invite us in. Well, I appreciate that, you know. And I think for me, you know, I grew up in the rural south. I grew up on the edge of a small town. I went to school with a lot of people who are Trump voters today. And they're some of the best people I know. Yeah. Uh, they, if your car broke down on the side of the road and one of these guys came driving by, they would pull over in their pickup truck while the Prius drove right on by. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. that matters. And we can vote against each other. That's a great thing about a democracy. We don't have to agree. You get to disagree in a democracy. In a dictatorship, you got to agree. Democracy, you get to disagree, but you don't have to disrespect and you don't have to disregard. Mm-hmm. And what a democracy is supposed to give us is the opportunity for constructive disagreement. Yes, disagree. And I'm not going to back down on mistreating Muslims or mistreating LGBT folks or mistreating women or any of the, there's no compromise on that. But who we're being when we disagree and do we continue this idea that I'm right all the time, you're wrong all the time. And now it's, we're right, they're wrong. We're not even talking to each other. Is that the pathway to the country that we want? Or like I said, do we have the fight from, you know, nine to noon? Fine, let's have the fight. But then you can't have a country if you only fight. You can't have a family if you only fight. You then got to identify some areas, not on the middle ground, but some common ground. Middle ground is some political crap. But the common ground, you know, this addiction crisis is hurting everybody. The criminal justice system is broken and everybody knows it. The kids are not getting prepared for the jobs of tomorrow. We all know it. So, fine, let's fight what we have to fight. But let's be just as passionate as finding those places where we actually, without changing our political points of view, could cooperate on something. And that's how you get to have a functioning democracy. We're now headed toward a failing democracy, and that's scary for everybody. Yeah, yeah. I was so moved in the book, Van, about your open letter to liberals and then your open letter to conservatives and how you pointed out the problems with both Democrats and Republicans. It was humbling for me, too. And one of the things, I was raised a Christian, I'm a total God girl, but members of my family are very fundamentalist. And have, like, one of the closest people to me in my family has basically stopped talking to me, disowned me because I voted for Hillary. And what shocked me the most about this book was when you said that progressive activists often forget that Christians and other people of faith were the backbone of the civil rights movement, but now people of faith are often looked down upon. And I saw my own self. I thought, I've been looking down on my own family because they're too fundamentalist Christian and somehow thinking that they're not smart enough and really being judgmental in my mind. And you brought that to my attention, and I'm very grateful. Well, I am very tough on liberals and progressives because that's, those are the people who I can influence and who I interact with on a regular basis. And we sometimes have a dead gum near colonial view. Yeah of the red states where we almost verge on when you're talking especially the coastal liberals it almost verges on these are unwashed backwater Mm -hmm. regions of uneducated ignorant people and we just have to convert them to our npr religion (laughs) and force feed them you know force feed them some kale and then then (laughs) we'll lift them up to our level 
and then they'll and, and that, you know that sounds like colonialism to me. You're right. Yeah. And people resist colonial projects because colonial projects are an affront to people's dignity. So when our fundamental view of people who live in red counties and blue states or who live in red states is that they are defective, there's nothing else that we can do. The conversation is over before it began. Mm-hmm. We have to start with confession. And you can bring some religious <laughs> language above the surface. We've got to start with confession, not accusation. Where have we fallen short? Now, this doesn't mean, again, that we surrender and let people be persecuted. I'm not, those are different conversations. Yes, we will defend the least of these who are being persecuted, full stop. But who are we going to be when we're doing that? Mm-hmm. Are we going to be just the opposite of the, you know, we're going to be reverse persecutors, reverse self-aggrandizing, arrogant, self-righteous, know-it-all people? Mm-hmm. Or can we enter the conflict with open enough hearts to say, look, there's pain everywhere. Mm-hmm. And hurt people holler. When Black Lives Matter is out there yelling, you may not like the way it sounds, but hurt people holler. And also, when the Tea Party and Trump voters get out there and they're hollering, hurt people holler. Now, mm-hmm. doesn't mean all their claims are just, but it means that there's something there I need to be paying more attention to. And I shouldn't come in assuming that it's just ignorance and bigotry. There may be something much deeper. And I have found, growing into Appalachia and working with coal miners and fighting and winning to get them their health care benefits back, which we did this year through the Love Army, that, yeah, you know what? We disagree on a bunch of stuff. And that, you know what? They vote Republican, and they should keep voting Republican because they are not going to agree with us on women and on LGBT and other stuff. But all of them could vote for better Republicans. They, could, mm-hmm. they, are, they are better people than the Republicans that they're supporting. They are better Mm -hmm. to each other and they are better in their hearts than the Republicans who they are supporting. And so I can have an argument with them to say, vote for better Republicans and I will vote for better Democrats and then we can get something done. I love that. I love that. And you talk about, speaking of voting for better Republicans and Democrats, you said that we know how to march against an elected official, but not how to elect one. Uh, and I feel like this, this is really important to me right now. I would love to understand this more. We all know what we're against, but we're confused about what we're for. How do we move forward? So can you talk to us about how do we get better at electing good, you know, good Democrats, good Republicans? You know, it's hard. And the first thing in the book is a quote from Nelson Mandela who talks about fighting against white domination and fighting against black domination and cherishing the ideal of a free democratic society. The first commitment we have to have is not to just prepare to critique or prepare to protest, but prepare to govern, to govern ourselves, to govern our communities, to govern the country in a good and fair way, and to build the capacity to do that, which means we can't play little. Oh, I'm just a victim of oppression and all these isms, and my only responsibility is just to speak my truth to power. No, no, no. (laughs) That's a part of it. But fundamentally, we're supposed to be the power. We're supposed to Mm -hmm. actually develop the capacity to govern, which means we have to draw our circle big enough to include enough people to do that. Now, the center of my circle is always going to be the left out, the abandoned. It's going to be the people who are mistreated. But the circumference of my circle needs to be big enough to include a whole bunch of people beyond just that. Mm -hmm. And for me, Nelson Mandela is such a great example. 
I mean, he was in prison for 27 years. His friends and family were being tortured and murdered. He could have come out and been a Twitter troll, you know? <laughs> you know, he, he'd have been justified being the meanest person on Facebook. But he came out and he said, I have a vision for South Africa that includes everybody being better off. It includes, I'm Kosa, I'm not Zulu, I'm not Fula, I'm not Afrikaner, but I see a vision where all of us could be better off together. And I'm going to fight not just against the white Afrikaners, I'm going to fight for them. I'm going to fight for their future to be better. And, you know, listen, there was an election, there was bloodshed, there was huge conflict, but ultimately he was able to prevail. And that argument was able to prevail because it included everybody in a profound way. And I think that the left has gotten away from that. And I think that for understandable reasons, because, you know, we got folks being persecuted. Yeah. But you can never let your enemy, inside yourself or outside yourself, limit your love, limit your heart, limit the stand that you're willing to take for everybody. And you know, we just got to bring it. We've done it. We've got to listen. Obama did that. Bobby Kennedy did that. Ella Jo Baker did that. Much, much more, many more examples of progressives doing that than not. But we somehow fell off the wagon here this past few years. Yeah. And we got punished mm -hmm. for it. Yeah. You know, you got me thinking when you just mentioned Facebook. One of the things that I found so encouraging about this book was when you were talking about encouraging constructive dissent and fair criticism and constructive disagreement where the criticisms we raise are aimed at improving our ability to work together. So I was thinking about that after the Las Vegas shooting and I posted something on Facebook. It was a quote from President Obama and it said something like, our prayers are not enough. And I waited. I knew there was going to be some dissent. And I thought, well, rather than taking the haters off of my Facebook, you know, blocking them or what if I try talking to them? Because this book encourages people to talk. There's a lot of people who aren't talking to each other anymore because we figure, what's the point? And I thought, well, Van would maybe tell me to talk. So, so I what waited. What would Van do? Yeah, what would Van do? So I waited for the haters started coming in, but not very many. And I wrote to one of them, and they were accusing me of trying to take his Second Amendment rights away. And, and I said, but I hear you. That was the first thing I wrote. I hear you. And I said, mm. I'm not saying that we should take away your guns. I said, but do we really need, I asked a question, do we really need semi-automatic and automatic weapons? And the person wrote back and said, you know, no, only the military needs us. And then a whole conversation started with all of these people talking about the issue. And then somebody would get out of line and then everybody would correct that one person and be like, hey, wait, that's not what we were talking about. Calm down. And I just thought, oh my God, we're having a conversation. And it felt really loving and it felt really inclusive. And I was so encouraged. And I thought, if I got nothing else from this book, I mean, I got so many things, but I thought that right there was the most important thing in my everyday life was the reminder to start talking to people again. Well, I'm so happy to hear that. And I think that part of it is there's certain rules for different games. And every game has its time and its place. So there's, sometimes there is a game of, I'm going to prove you wrong and I'm going to prove myself right. There's time <laughs> yeah. for that. Yeah. But if that's the only game we play, the downside is that we lose community. So sometimes we have to play a different game. And the rules of that game are, I want to understand you and I want you to understand me. Now, understanding does not require agreement. You can <laughs> understand things that you disagree with. 
but that's got to become a renewed commitment. I just want to understand, how did you arrive at that view? Why do you feel that way? What are your fears? What are your hopes? I just want to understand. I'm a vote against you. I'm a march against you. I don't agree. Mm-hmm. But I still want to understand why. Because when you, there's understanding, you reduce the inflammation. And it's the inflammation that is keeping the process stuck. When there's real relatedness, then you have thesis, and then you have antithesis, and then you have synthesis. That's mm-hmm. how constructive disagreement works in a democracy, is I've got an idea Maybe I'm for markets. I'm a big pro-market guy. You've got an idea. Maybe you're pro-government. Well, if we argue long enough, we might come up with a public-private partnership that can get us a better outcome than the market alone or government alone because you had a thesis and antithesis, but you got to a synthesis. You never get to the synthesis when there's inflammation, and that's what we have right now, just unnecessary emotional antagonism that prevents us from thinking creatively. And so... Fine, there's time to fight and argue. There's time to vote against each other in March. But there's also got to be that time we get around the campfire and we tell our stories and we just listen to understand, not to correct, not to challenge, not to critique, not to undermine, but just to really understand. You know what? I'm going to give you the gift of being witnessed by me. And will you now please give me the gift of being witnessed by you? And now we'll go back to our corners and fight. But we're going to fight differently now because we understand. Mm. And that's what you and Newt Gingrich have done, right? Yes. Yeah. It's fun to write about Newt in this book because I've been so blessed. The second book I wrote, which is called Rebuild the Dream, I got a chance to talk a little bit about working in the Obama White House. But this book, it's very little about the Obama White House. It's a lot about Prince. It's a lot about Newt Gingrich and these other partnerships I've been able to develop over the years with very unlikely people. And the thing I learned from Newt, you know, we had a TV show together called Crossfire. But the thing I learned about Newt uh, from him, he said, your 90% enemy can be your 10% friend where you agree. And Mm -hmm. Newt and I agree that the addiction crisis is being handled very badly. We agree that the criminal justice system is broken. And we've worked together. We've even got legislation introduced in Congress together to try to fix parts of the criminal justice system. And people are always so shocked. They say, Listen, you know, where we disagree, we just fight. I mean, it's, just, it's not a problem. <laughs> but <laughs> where we agree, we work together. And that's called being an adult. Like, <laughs> somehow, you've got all the grown people failing kindergarten now because you don't agree on this thing in the morning and now you won't play together all day. We wouldn't allow that in any preschool, but we allow it in Congress. And that's part of what the book is trying to challenge. Van, I have a question for you. As we go, we talk about the fighting between liberals and conservatives, the Democrats and Republicans. I want to talk a little bit about what you mentioned in the book, which is a special thing that liberals do to each other (laughs) inside, which is this call-out culture that you talk about in Beyond the Messy Truth. But as someone who speaks and writes in the liberal world, I live in constant fear that I'm going to say the wrong thing or do the wrong thing, and it won't be the opposition <laughs> that takes me down. It will be the people that usually stand next to me who will point out, sometimes it feels like it's a big vocabulary war, like if you say the wrong thing. So talk a little bit about that, like how we get past this call-out culture and what that is and how we can do better. I don't know, but it is disgusting and unfair, and it's a form of bullying on behalf of people who are usually the ones getting bullied. 
And it's one of those things where the rules of that game are deconstruct everything, but don't reconstruct anything. Mm-hmm. Okay? So you get to win that game by sitting back, waiting for someone else who's showing some courage, who's showing some initiative, who's trying to make a point or just to be heard or just to get through their presentation and pounce on any mistake that they've made to assign to yourself moral authority and to turn them into essentially someone to be made an example of. And then you create this kind of mob attack against them because nobody wants to be put in the left-hand position. It's immoral. There's no grace. There's no sense of forgiveness. There's no opportunity for people to be called up. See, we don't need to call people out. We need to call people up and call them in. Mm. And that's really what's required. We all make mistakes. We all learn. A little baby learning how to walk is going to fall down a bunch. If you scream and yell at the baby and humiliate them, that baby's going to lay there and never move. But you want people to make mistakes because you want people to be talking about things we haven't talked about before, trying on ideas we haven't tried on before. That's how people grow. And then when people say things that show, hey, okay, this person still doesn't understand certain things, you want to call them in and call them up. Because the real problem that you have is trying to sell people on an idea where the premise is you suck, you are a bad person, you are an ignorant person, your motives are bad, and you're blind to even how bad your motives are, now buy my product. I have never seen <laughs> mass adoption of a product with that sales pitch. To shame, shame buying. Like, right? Mm-hmm. So then when people don't buy it, see, aha, well, that's proof that you suck. <laughs> because if you didn't suck, you'd own your privilege and you'd want to be a part of this. No, 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 guys. It's proof that we have a good product, but we're selling it the wrong way. Uh, For me, fundamentally, what we should be saying to people is, you're awesome, and you could be a lot more awesome, but you've got a skill set deficit, you've got some perspective deficits that we want to help you with so you can be even more successful and have an even better life with less stress, more friends, more possibilities to work with people, with less friction, and be amazing with the rest of us. That's what we want for you. Now, that product, somebody might actually want to buy, but it would require that people who are advocating justice themselves be just. People who are calling for grace in society themselves act with grace. And that's the challenge. We're getting called on our own hypocrisy now. Listen, I'll say this, and I don't care about it. I get drug every day on the Internet. The liberals can't stand me because I refuse to go along with this nonsense. But if your fundamental view is that a straight, white, cisgendered, heterosexual male in the red states who voted for Trump is a horrible human being, they should vote against you next time. <laughs> like, I mean, that, fine, yeah. you get to say that. You get to throw them out of your circle. And then guess what? They get to then form their own circle mm-hmm. that you're not inside mm-hmm. of. Mm-hmm. Now, that's just the way that it works. That's called kindergarten. So mm. if you want to keep flunking kindergarten, you go ahead. But for those of us who are adults, mm. we have to be able to say, guess what? I disagree with you on your vote. But I don't accept that your bad vote makes you a bad person. I go into prisons every week. I don't accept that people who have committed acts of murder and worse are bad people. They did something I disagree with, and I want them to make different choices going forward. But I don't throw people convicted of murder out of my moral circle. 
I'm sure not going to throw a Trump voter out of my moral circle. Oh, and, wow. Right? Great point. God, that's, that's so true. That is so true. Wow. I would much, at this point in my life, I am much more forgiving to a murderer than I am to a Trump voter. That is not right? okay. You're exactly you know what? Right. I'm just having a total aha here. I remember I used to live in New Mexico, Van, and I had a lot of raw land, and I adopted all these stray animals that people would dump at our gate. And at one point, I think I had eight dogs. And one day, the dogs, all of the dogs turned on one of them. And I went to, there was a Native American medicine man that lived nearby, and I said, what is going on? My dogs are so sweet. How could they do this? And he said, when you get out on raw land like this, animals become more animalistic. They get more tribal. It's more raw. And I think the aha I'm having right now is that that's where we've gone as a country. And it's not like we're not people who think about things. And I'm a spiritual person and I'm a thinker and I like to do my work. And I've gone to therapy many, many times in my life and I try to be really responsible with my thinking. And I'm having the realization right now that I have gone animalistic and I have gone tribal. And I'm sitting there looking at people. I caught myself the other day. I was in a neighborhood where I saw a whole bunch of people who, I don't know, I'm so sorry, I'm being so judgmental right now, but I looked at them all and they went, Trump voters. I was actually afraid of them. I noticed in that moment, my judgment was coming from fear. I thought, they don't like me. They're looking at me thinking, she voted for Hillary. So I thought, oh, my God, we've got like a little war going on emotionally and intellectually in this country that is really, really frightening, which is why I loved going on Facebook and having that conversation with people who I would probably look at them and think that same thing, be afraid of them and think they hate me. But here's the thing that I think is so key is that we have to actually take seriously what you just said and then apply it. I do a trick with people a lot of times when I'm in front of audiences and I ask people to think about the three people who they know that they like the most. Not that they like on TV, but they clearly actually have a relationship with who they like the most. And then I say, okay, well, think of three more. But you really like these people. Okay, now think of one more. Because now you got ten people. And then I ask the question, are they all the same? <laughs> are they all the same age? Are they all the same race? You know, are they all the same from the same part of the country? And people, no, they always kind of look, well, what do they have in common? Nobody can figure out what they have in common. It's what they have in common. They all like you. That's right. All those people that you like a lot, they all like you because it's impossible to like somebody who doesn't like you. Now, we have built an entire movement based on not liking red state voters. Mm. So guess what? They don't like us. And... That's all it is. We're all afraid we can talk to be about tough. policy. We can talk about policies. We can talk about Hillary. We can talk about Russians. We can talk about Comey. <laughs> Here's the bottom line. We don't like them. And they noticed. And that's it. Oh, so how about this? <laughs> how about we start liking them? How about we find the stuff about them that's awesome and like it? How about that? Start with that. And guess what? There's a lot to like. Yeah, fine. Maybe, you know, they buy different clothes or eat different food. But family, big with those folks. Oh, yeah. uh, mm-hmm. You know, sports, faith, they know how to fix stuff. You know what I mean? They don't need an app for every daggum thing. They got friends and skills. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So there's amazing stuff happening in the red states and the red counties. 
that we should get pumped about. There's pain there that we should get pissed about. And guess what? A lot of the stuff will go away. The inflammation will go away. Even if they vote against us, they won't bring 19 friends to vote against us. And they'll vote for better people to work against us and with us in Congress. And the country can get better. But as long as we are stuck on feeling superior to them, we are feeding what we're fighting. We're fueling what we're fighting. And so that to me is a great good news. Because that means, guess what? We can just stop being hateful and being ourselves. (laughs) Yeah. We can stop being assholes. Remember hope and change? I I haven't moved. I'm still exactly where I was in 2008. (laughs) I'm a hope and changer. Everybody else wants to follow Trump into the sewer. I'm not going. I'm going to stay right here with Michelle Obama. When they go low, we We go high. high. doesn't mean that we win every election. It means we don't lose our humanity, and that's more important. God. Yes. Yes. So good. Okay, Dan, i got to ask you something specific before we have to go. It's about this, the opioid epidemic. So, so the way I want to ask this question is that so my nonprofit's about to jump into this opioid thing this winter. We're going to some centers. We're going to figure out how to serve there. But one thing that I learned early on in nonprofit work is that my friends, my board and I were working just day and night, just kind of like pulling people out of the rivers paying medical bills for basic treatment, taking care of kids because the bread earner in their family was in jail um, for something so simple, paying for basic needs like food and heat and clean water. And one day I read this quote that said, at some point you got to stop pulling people out of the water long enough to look down river and find out who's pushing them in. And that's <laughs> when it hit me that, oh, there are systems, because people are generally doing the best they can. And I believe this which means that there are systems in place that are creating these victims, which was when I figured out, okay, philanthropy can't just be philanthropy. It has to be an and both with activism. So we've got to serve the ones who are already hurting and then somehow confront, infiltrate, encourage institutions to do better so there are fewer victims downriver later. Okay, so in terms of the opioid crisis, where is that place? I know where to go to help the people who are already victims. Addiction, near and dear to my heart. I am a recovering addict. My wife has dealt with opioid addiction. But what is, is it big pharma? What's causing, who's pushing people in the river? Well, the two things. One is that big pharma did convince doctors that they were under treating for pain. And so then doctors started passing out to white people, but not to black people, big barrels full of painkillers. Now. Interestingly, racism actually helped black people in this because doctors, for whatever reason, just weren't as concerned about black people complaining about pain, actually undertreated us for uh, for pain. So we had more pain but less addiction over-treated white people. So it's one of those weird things. But So yes, there's a big problem over there. But here's the other problem. The recovery establishment has a bunch of ideas about opioid addiction that don't work for that particular kind of chemical, those particular kinds of molecules. There's an establishment within the recovery community that basically is kind of a 12-step fundamentalism. That This is mm-hmm. fundamentally a question of human will and divine grace, and that you just need to up the will and pull in more grace and you can be in the addiction. That's not exactly true for a lot of people when it comes to opioid. For a lot of people, not everybody, but for a lot of people, it really does rewire the brain And we do need medically assisted treatments. And 
You know, in other words, sometimes you have to use a drug to get off of a drug. And mm-hmm. the recovery orthodoxy says, no, don't do that. And a lot of the drug courts will say, no, don't do that. So what's happened is we've now backed ourselves into a detox and die model mm-hmm. where people actually go into recovery, get off for a while. But this stuff is so powerful for too many people. It's reorganized their brain so much, they wind up relapsing. But when they relapse, they relapse back to their old dosage, which then now kills them because they no longer have the tolerance. And so a lot of what we are doing that we think is good, pushing people into recovery based on the old model is really a detox and die model. And so we've got to be able to say, look, medically assisted treatment is good. It's death prevention. It's life-saving. And we got to wean people off. You know, my guy Prince died after a Narcan shot. Uh, We didn't know he was Mm. addicted until he almost died on a plane. They gave him a shot of Narcan, brought him back. A week later, he's dead. Detox and die. Because Mm -hmm. we didn't understand that this is a very, 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 very difficult kind of addiction to beat. So I think more people need to get engaged and involved, but we need to change the culture of recovery around this and then change what the medical establishment and what drug courts will allow around this. Mm-hmm. And the decriminalization completely of addiction. I know you say it in your book, but the jails are just full of people who are actually suffering from a disease. Yeah. Well, thank you never, for and it, your and work it, on that. Well, and, and it, look, well, thank you. And it should never go without saying that when the addiction crisis around narcotics broke out in the black community, the response was just to lock everybody up. And yep. now you have an addiction crisis breaking out in the white community around opioids and it's, you know, lift everybody up. Yeah. And it's painful. You know, <laughs> addiction is addiction. And Well, then, I mean, I think um, about just a, the vocabulary, just the vocabulary used there. This is an epidemic crisis. It's an opioid crisis. It's an opioid epidemic. But when it was crack, when it was in the black communities, it was a war. So when there's a crisis, you have victims. When there's a war, you have enemies, right? So the language is just freaking me out. It's just all of it's so entrenched. You have so much to learn. It's just to unlearn, I guess. But I struggle even with this effort with the opioid epidemic because it bothers me so much that the reaction of nonprofits is so different than it was when it was in the inner cities. Well, part of the opportunity is to do some bridge building. There are communities that have been dealing with the addiction crisis for a long time where there's a lot of wisdom, a lot of knowledge, a lot of understanding. Why aren't we funding and supporting African-American-led and Latino-led urban recovery programs to expand into and find partners in Appalachia, in West Virginia, to help. Here's some sermons that work. Here's some questions that work. Here's how we do, deal with housing. We never do that. We have no problem having white folks expand into brown communities. Some white kid, you know, God bless her, from a Stanford or from a Yale or some white guy from a Princeton has some great idea and wants to go into the hood and, <laughs> you know, and do the program. Hey, of course. Hey, here's a hundred thousand bucks. Go try. Now, some mm-hmm. African-American grandma has been in South Central for 25 years, has an incredible record of turning lives around when it comes to addiction. If she wanted to go and find some ministers to partner with in West Virginia, she couldn't get a penny. <laughs> I feel right. like, what the heck? Okay. Now, that's where I think we have to ask tough questions. There is genius and resilience 
and Native American communities and Black communities and low-income Asian communities and Appalachia and Latino communities and the Muslim community. Genius, genius, genius and resilience. And we should be allying with that and lifting it up, not just seeing our communities as victim communities, as oppressed communities, but as sources of real resilience and genius and insight and innovation that could save the country. You know, these are the opportunities that if you look at things from a, I guess, from an asset-oriented point of view, we've got a great country. And the diversity means that we've got every kind of human being ever born in one country, which means we've got every great story, every great idea, every great possible approach. And if we work together, we're all better off. That's the fundamental view. And it's not you need to own your privilege. You need to sit down and shut up and let me tell you how you're wrong, what I've been through. That spirit, you know, that might need to happen in one act of the play, but that can't be the whole trilogy or it ain't going to work. Right. Van, I want to talk about the environment a minute before we go. You say that any high school student can reproduce the greenhouse gas effect in a laboratory beaker. And the majority of U.S. conservatives reject the overwhelming scientific consensus that humans are disrupting the Earth's climate. And sometimes I worry that we're just rearranging deck chairs on the Titanic at this point. I mean, talk about addiction. What I see in my son's friends and in his peer group, so their whole generation of 20 to 30, what I see is Almost every single one of them has talked about suicide at some point. Almost every single one of them, and we're talking 20, 30 kids, has had massive depression. They look at me and they say, what's the point? Not only were they raised with the housing crisis and three wars and all of that, but they're also raised going to school and learning about greenhouse gases and thinking, we may not be able to have children. So my question to you is, what do you think could save us? I literally had a Republican friend the other day say to me, and who I love, and I have dear, dear Republican friends, and he literally said to me, I think technology will save us. Somebody's going to figure it out. I'm thinking, oh, my God, does that make any sense? Am I crazy to be chicken little? Because I'm scared. Well. Sorry, that was all over the place. I th- no, that's all. I'm just, I'm, it's such an important question. I was just kind of reeling thinking about the suicide question. That wasn't something that, I mean, those of us who grew up in the, I was born in 68, so those of us who grew up in the, 70s and 80s, we had that overhang of nuclear war. Yeah. And I remember thinking, well, I don't think we're going to make it because Reagan's going to start a war or whatever. And the way that we killed in those days, if it got out of hand, could kill everybody and wipe out all life. Now the way that we live because of using this kind of pollution-based energy system to wipe out all life by disrupting the climate. So it's tough and it's a big overhang. But here's what I think is distressing to me about what you say. Resilience and creativity is a skill, it's a mindset, it, it requires something of us. And I think we just, there's something that has gotten off the rails with this relentless deconstruction, critique, negativity that seems to characterize so much of the liberal discourse. It just seems to be a discourse that's about, hey, you look like you might be slightly happy today. Let me explain to you why that's ill-considered. You know, you should actually be better than you are. You should be down. You know, you should be down on yourself. You should be down on the country. You should be down on the future. That's what you should mm-hmm. be. If not, you're just not woke enough to be sad yeah. or mad. Mm-hmm. And I don't think that's the right path. I think that we're being rejected for a number of reasons. 
it's not just, oh, well, these guys don't know the science. Yeah, I mean, I've pulled some of these guys to the side. Um, I said, come on. Yeah, we're, we're all friends here. <laughs> it's, it's, you know that we're more right than wrong on this climate stuff. If you listen, yeah, maybe so, but you guys just want to use it to grab government power. And if we accept your argument, we have to accept your answer. <laughs> and your answer is more government power, and we don't believe in that. So, you know, at the top, some of these people see this as more complicated. What I will yeah. say is this. There is a way out of this. I'm sure there will be some technologies that come along that maybe help to suck more carbon out or that replace it and replace that. Will it happen soon enough? I don't know. But I don't think it's primarily a technological problem. I think it's primarily a tribal problem. Mm-hmm. You know, we have the green tribe and we have those people aren't going to tell me what to do tribe. and they're just fighting. And what's required is a third tribe. What's required is a third way out. And where being for a smarter approach to energy doesn't require you to sign on to the whole liberal agenda. And where being skeptical about some of the economic consequences of the transition doesn't give me the right to then say that you're just an idiot and a climate denier. There's got to be a third space where people who are asking tough questions about the economic transition can sit at the table and not be called names. And I I remember, this is the last thing I'll say, this is not as hard as it sounds. John McCain in 2008 was a climate champion. Yeah. Newt Gingrich sat on a sofa with Nancy Pelosi and did an ad for Climate Solutions. This was 10 years ago. Mm-hmm. So within the past 10 years, there was a bipartisan consensus built around climate disruption and then undone by Coke Industries and others who just said, no, we're going to make it a part of the culture war as opposed to part of the economic future of the country. Yeah. Now, I don't know how to undo that, but I'm going to tell you it's being undone by the solar industry, which is growing faster than anything else in the yeah. country. We already have more people working in solar and wind and smart cars and smart batteries and are working in coal mines by a factor of, I think, 10. We've got states and we've got tribes and we've got local governments that are moving in the right direction. So the federal government stuck on stupid and it's become a part of the cultural war. But 10 years from now, that need not be the case. Yeah, yeah. Oh, good Lord. All right, Van, I want to close by saying that I'm seeing another thing that the two of you have in common. Glennon always says that we can do hard things. And Van, you say in this beautiful book that America is hard to do and that we need to acknowledge that. And there comes a time when we must redouble our efforts to listen to one another and make progress. And I know that I am speaking for millions when I say that I feel so blessed to live in a country where leaders like the two of you show us every day how to do hard things. You're showing us how to be love warriors in the love army, and I love you guys so much. Oh, Linda. Thank you. That's very kind. And, Van, I'm just always going to be in your corner. So every time things get loud and you hear from (laughs) the haters, just know there is an army behind you. And we're watching and we're listening and we'll follow. Ditto. Well, I appreciate that, and thanks for the kind words about the book. The subtitle of the book is How We Came Apart and How We Come Together, and I'm hoping there's enough people who are sick of the crazy (laughs) that want to have a sane, sober conversation 
people about how we get out of this mess, that this book can add to that dynamic. And um, I appreciate the chance to talk about it. Amen. It does. It does. All right. Well, Bless thank you guys. you guys. Have a great afternoon. Thank you. Mm-hmm. All right. Okay. You too. Bye. 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 Amazing leaders, right? You can find Glennon and info on the final stops of her Together Live tour over at Momastery.com. Van Jones lives over at vanjones.net. And his book, Beyond the Messy Truth, is everywhere. I don't know that Van has any idea that I help support writers and connect them with literary agents, but I so appreciated how he talked about how writing is a team sport and how important it is to get help with it. I like to joke that friends don't let their friends write alone. If you're looking for a champion, bookmama.com has all the info about how I support writers from writing retreats in Carmel, the beautiful writers online support group, a downloadable publishing program I created with Danielle Laporte, and loads of freebies and resources. Oh, and if you're in Los Angeles and want to see Van in Company Town, the environmental documentary I talked about earlier, the LA screening is December 8th. I hope to see you there. If you like the show, I always appreciate your five-star love over on iTunes. Next up will be Mr. Tom Hanks, who is coming on in a few weeks to talk about his new book of short stories, Uncommon Type. Lucky me, right? Lucky us. Until next time, everyone, write on. Write on.